0: Hey, podcast listeners, Ethan Millard and Alex Curie here from the Nightside Project Podcast here at KSL Podcast. Get into Zen Headlines with us on the Nightside Project. Use hashtag Zen Headlines on social media to share stories that make you think, make you smile, spread love, spread joy, all those things. We'll share them on the Nightside Project Podcast, one of the most popular podcasts ever. Nightside is a KSL podcast. Subscribe
1: for free anywhere you listen to podcasts. Talk to us at Cordell and Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404.
0: Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. Today on the show, we've got Kyle Mills.
1: Fade started with hit that idea of this guy that, that, that was colorful and funny, but also very nonchalant about killing people. And so I when I started that book, it's very unusual for me. It's probably unique for me. I didn't have a story to tell about that guy. It was just that that he existed in my mind and the story developed around the character
0: this is another episode of our innovation and leadership series where we interview pro athletes world-class musicians ceos hollywood filmmakers and a wide variety of other high achievers before we get rolling i want to invite you to get involved with child rescue the charity our founder started to learn more about them just come to our website icollective.co and check on the child rescue tab on our menu Also, I want to talk to you about one of our show's sponsors. I met these guys back on episode six. CEO Zach Smith was telling me all about starting a skateboard company and how much he hated doing the bookkeeping uh, for a skateboard shop and how he really uh, got led to start this business, Bookly, that's a hybrid combining bookkeeping software and human services. And I'll tell you why I let him become a sponsor. It's because I use their service now. I don't love paying 50 bucks an hour for bookkeepers to do stuff that I know software could do way, way cheaper. But uh, I don't love bookkeeping at all. So I want a real live human who knows what they're talking about to help me with the stuff I don't understand. Uh, probably the straw that broke the camel's back for me, though. The thing that put me over the top was that they could do my taxes and payroll also. Um, so totally suggest checking them out. Go to their website, bookly.co, and check out their flat rates. I've been super happy with them. So now on to today's episode. Kyle, thanks for making time. Thanks for having me. So um, for anyone who isn't aware of the Mitch Rapp series and the Michael Keaton movie that came out last week and, uh, and your writing career in general, um, can you tell us just a bit about your, your career path and how you got to here?
1: Uh, yeah, I started about 20 years ago, uh, probably got into this business a little differently than most people. I think most people have a passion for writing from when they're young and and uh, pursue it and, and dream of having a career in it. Uh, I was a corporate banker and a rock climber. That was kind of my obsession at the time. But I never really did anything creative, so I started thinking about that. I'd always admired creative people and decided I was going to build furniture. But the truth is uh, I'm not very handy, which is something my wife mentioned to me, and she's the (laughs) one that suggested I write a novel. So it seemed like kind of a dumb idea. I'd studied economics and had never really done much creative. I hadn't really done any creative writing. Um, But it kind of stuck in my head because I'd been a huge reader my entire life since I was very, very young. I'd read thrillers in particular. Uh, I couldn't get it out of my head. So I kind of embarked on it. And in the methodical way that I normally do, I bought a bunch of books on how to write a novel and read them
0: all and wrote a book. And was that Phoenix Rising? What was the first one?
1: Yeah, yeah, Ryan, Rising
0: Phoenix. Or, sorry, actually, Rising Phoenix.
1: Yeah. And uh so I, I you know I I honestly never really thought that it would probably get published. Um I was pretty realistic about that, and but people that read it really liked it and uh I thought I why not give it a try, which is sort of soul crushing to any if anybody out there's ever done it. Um you basically get turned down by everybody hmm. and I did, but I finally did get an agent and um That went on to be a national bestseller. And I ended up signing a two book deal, which was a little weird because I'd never it had never occurred to me that I'd ever write a second book. It had just been kind of an exercise in creativity.
0: (laughs) That's so interesting. So I'd love to talk about this because I feel like we have a society that likes to tell you you can only be one thing and you can only do one thing. And if I remember right, you said that you didn't do particularly well at English historically in, in school or something and here you go from you know a finance major you're you're you know giving loans at the bank to now a not just a, not just a best selling author but a new york times number 1 best selling author um can you talk about any thoughts that you have about maybe not letting limitations get in the way or you know, it's going to be hard, but maybe it's worth it?
1: Yeah, it's kind of a strange, you know, it's kind of a strange world with that. Um, I grew up, you know, with, my father was an FBI agent, uh, grew up in Oregon, grew up in D.C., and the people around me were, I mean, this has become in very handy, we're all FBI, CIA, spec ops people, MI6, and they're a very certain type of person. You probably notice if you read thriller novels. Um, and and I, I don't know that I necessarily fit in with that group, but I found them really fascinating. I moved from Baltimore uh, to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which, uh, because I was such a serious rock climber, and got a job here, I'd been a corporate banker there, I got a job here at a bank. And it, this was the place that inspired it, and in the, in the people, because they were all very, very different than anybody I had uh, ever met before. You know, they didn't talk about what they did for work, There seemed to be a kind of an infinite sense of possibility um, with them. And, I mean, even when I got here, I started climbing with a guy. And, you know, a few weeks into knowing him, he called me up one day and said, hey, why don't we fly to Thailand next week and we'll spend a few months climbing there? And I said, well, I can't just go off to Thailand. And he said, why not? I've got a house there and, you know, it'll be free. And... I said, well, well, I have a job. And he said, well, quit it. You can always get another one. (laughs) And I thought, I could. I could. I could. I could just quit it. I could get another one. And that's the way people thought. They were always, they'd just come back from, you know, summiting Everest or, you know, sp- you know, spending you know six months, you know, riding their bike across Africa or something, and it had never occurred to me um, that you could just do stuff like that. I think about people I meet that, you know, they say I've always wanted to go to France, and uh, you know, I've been planning to do this for my whole life and everything. And I, and now having lived in Jackson and been around people like this for so many years, I think why don't you just buy a ticket, get on a plane, and go for the weekend? I mean, just you know, just do it. And it was it took me a long time though uh, to to make that transition I, I remember another friend of mine called and and he was he was also in thailand and he was working on uh, a leonardo dicaprio movie he's a professional climber i climbed with and he said hey um you should fly out to thailand and i convince them that i need an assistant and they'll pay you five hundred dollars a day and we don't really do anything because leo never gets anywhere near a cliff and once again i said well i can't just leave and he said why not you get five hundred dollars a day and they feed us you don't have to do anything we'll just go <laughs> climbing." And I didn't do it. And I always regret that. I think, why didn't I just do it? Yeah. But, you know, it wasn't programmed into me that you just do stuff. You, if you, you can do anything you want, as long as you allow, as long as you allow it.
0: Well, because I want to talk about this. I, I really see that in the action sports world in general. We, you know, we had a guy on the show who's invented kind of a new form of snowboarding. It's has no bindings. They call it pow surfing. And, uh, We've, we've had different, you know, entrepreneurs who used to be skateboarders or just folks from the action sports world where they failed a whole bunch of times and they, that's just part of the process and they just, they just go for it anyways. And, I mean, I heard a story that you had rejection letters. You had so many rejection letters that you're like your wall of shame fell off and hit your computer. Is that, is that true?
1: Yeah, that is an actual true story. I put a bulletin board up there and kept putting them on there and got too heavy and pulled out of the wall.
0: But that kind of rejection and to keep trying seems like a pretty common thing amongst people who actually make it. Yeah, I mean, I I, I, think,
1: that, I, I think that there's something really to that. I can't remember. I think it was Brad Thor, another one of my colleagues, who said something to the effect of, of you know if you know if you if you keep tr- if all you do is keep trying, you've you've narrowed your options down to only one success. And I think that's, that's absolutely true. Now, I mean, th- there are certainly external factors, and I think you have to I- – I think it's very important for you to be realistic about your abilities and your innate abilities. Um, to be honest with you, all I ever wanted to be was a musician, but I'm terrible. <laughs> so no matter how hard I pursued it, that was never going to happen. But, I, I mean, if- I think if you're realistic – and you s- that's the other thing is you know, you've got to seek out in life what are you good at what do you enjoy? You know, for me, my course, at least I thought when I was young was set, you know, it was the eighties, you went to business school, you became, you know, a banker or an investment person. And, you know, you made a lot of money and that's, that's what you did with your life. Yeah. And, uh, then I discovered not everybody does that with their lives. And there are some other lives that are pretty good too.
0: Yeah. Well, when you think about, um, it does seem like you didn't just go willy nilly either. Like it wasn't just on hopes and dreams. Like you knew you were starting the beginning and you went and got a whole bunch of the books and you actually read them and looked. it sounds to me like you were looking for the patterns that worked for other people. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, and I think writing is maybe the worst thing with people kind of using the fact that it's a subjective and creative endeavor uh, to cover up the fact that they don't, aren't willing to work hard at it. Um, it's it's not easy, and I think people think because they can talk, or they can write a letter that you can write a piece of novel-length fiction. And, you know, it's a lot of work. I mean, you can have all the talent in the world, but, it, it, you know, if you're not willing to criticize yourself and uh, and learn from other people and admit, you know, that something isn't good or that maybe you're not good at something, um, it's going to be very hard, I think, to succeed.
0: You know, I, I'd love to hear what you think some of those patterns are. I, uh, In my emails back and forth with your wife, trying to figure out how to get you on the show, I was telling her, you know, I've read probably 200 plus books from, from this genre. And, you know, this is hands down my favorite series. And I think I like thousands and thousands of the other fans were so impressed with how seamless it is. I think if people didn't read the front of the books, they wouldn't know where Vince left and you picked up. And that's, you know, that's not an average skill. Like you, it's obvious you have honed your craft and you've put in the hours. Um, What do you feel like are some of the common mistakes for And let's talk specifically the thriller genre. Let's say I want to write books someday in the thriller, which I actually would. What What do you feel like are some of the most common mistakes?
1: Um, I think probably the most common mistake would be making it too detailed and too plot-oriented, uh, potentially even sometimes too realistic. The truth is that books are about people, and that's what attracts them, uh, it attracts a reader. So you'll read some novels that are particularly war novels that are – you know, have a thousand characters in them. None of them are really well developed, 800 acronyms, and, and it just gets piled on. And while it might be realistic, it's not um, particularly readable. So that, and, and look, those kinds of war books are, are, are particularly hard. I mean, if you read uh, Tom Clancy's Red Storm Rising, there's an example of somebody who, you know, did it right. They managed to write a very long and technical book that still had characters and so, scenarios that you cared about.
0: Well, obviously you've done it well where, you know, Enemy of the State, you know, number, I think you said it's number two on New York Times right now. I just looked on Amazon. It's in the top five best best-selling books on all of Amazon currently in the whole world. Ahead of Jean le Carré, by the way. Oh, nice. <laughs> right? With nice yeah, notch on the belt so, there.
1: Considering he's, uh, yeah, I mean, certainly one of my, uh, one of the people that got me into this business so, <laughs> right. uh, and a legend. It's always nice to beat him.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> when you think about this, this human, like, I think, um, obviously big fan of enemy of the state. I, I listened to it within 24 hours of it coming out on audible. Um, and I am kind of a rap junkie, but so wasn't <laughs> my friends weren't surprised about that. But, um, I think about some of your other great books. Like I personally, I think my favorite of your other books is probably fade. And as soon as you said that about the human thing, it really made me think, you know, here's a, you know, <laughs> somewhat flawed character that I like drastically identified with like I cared so much about him and at you know the end of that book where things are getting pretty dicey you know I I was really involved with him as an individual I identified with him as an individual um is that something how do as a writer how do we get that dialed in to the characters as a person That
1: that was kind of the genesis of that book was a little bit unusual that um, I had a friend who was in this in spec ops in uh, Vietnam. He was my father's best friend. And he and I had gone shooting once when I was I was probably 16 or something. And he had a Russian gun. He only had four rounds for it, but he let me shoot one of them. And I asked him where he would come by something like that. And, And he said, well, I was walking through the jungle one day and there was a Russian guy there putting on his boots. So I shot him in the head. And then I went up and I did all this other stuff. And he had a big story about, you know, the, the Viet Cong we're going to attack and he was doing a recon. And he said, I was walking back through the jungle and he and this gun was lying next to him. It was his gun. So I took it as a souvenir. And it was a very nonchalant conversation. And it had always stuck with me that he had killed this guy and hadn't really thought much about it. But he was also a very funny and colorful and very flawed sort of character. I mean, the kind of guy that at a dinner party would pass out and like his face would just hit the table. <laughs> and um, so the that is, Fade started with hit that idea of this guy that, that, that was colorful and funny, but also very nonchalant about killing people. And so I, when I started that book, it's very unusual for me. It's probably unique for me. I didn't have a story to tell tell about that guy. It was just that that he existed in my mind. And the story developed around the character. And to me, writing a character is a little bit like applied schizophrenia. It's it's you have to sort of become that character that you're whose point of view you're writing from. And then you uh, it, you just channel that person. And sometimes they surprise you. They do things that you wouldn't expect them to do. I mean, I had a Mitch Rapp book where he slept with this woman and that wasn't in my outline. I'd never thought that I'd never even thought about it. But there I was typing away and he did it. Um, and I was thinking, no, don't do that. This is going to end horribly for you. Which it did. Uh, So, that I think is the important thing. And probably just like acting, the more different that character is from you, the harder it becomes to inhabit the character. And so sometimes, you know, I wrote a serial killer book once and it was very hard for me to inhabit that character.
0: Yeah. You know, I I re listened to Order to Kill last week because I knew we were going to be on the show together. And I was thinking about that because I had seen your interview where you talked about. We'll see where Mitch goes with this, and I wanted to see if you had any guidance. You know, because it sounds like as it was unfolding, here's what you realize the character needs to do, even though you hadn't planned it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, if I understand you right, how do you <clears throat> how do you know? how do you stay on the balance beam and not overdo it and not underdo it with the planning versus recognizing what, what Mitch is going to do?
1: My, my process is probably different than almost anyone's. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. Uh, but I write very, very elaborate outlines. So my outlines are for 110,000. So this book, I'm looking at it right now here on my computer. This book will probably end up being about 110,000 pages. My outline's 40, or I'm sorry, 110,000 words. My outline is 40,000 words. So it's really nailed down. I've thought about this and written about this for a long time before I ever write a chapter. But then I don't necessarily follow the outline entirely. So I, I understand the story, I understand the characters, but then I'm pretty open to them going in other directions. But by the time i sort of put pen to paper to write the prose i really understand the story and the characters and that that i think allows me the freedom to let them go their own way
0: yeah you know um i'm interested to in the ways that you rely on your background you know the the couple phone calls i made here i was telling you before we got on before we started recording i called uh one of our consultants who's from one of the tier one units the army special missions unit former guy who, uh, by the way, said he's heard good things about the movie. <laughs> and then uh, the second one was our our consultant who at Mylan Advisors, who's you know 22 year counterintelligence agent, you know uh, FBI hostage negotiator, also, and asking him about the cool stuff Lee Gats used to do and get to do. And um, can you talk just a little bit about your dad's generation, the gun toters, and how you feel like that's been a benefit to be able to draw on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, the the FBI now, you know, probably uh, for, for better is a pretty intellectual organization, but it was different in the 70s. You know, it was, uh, you know, more of, uh, I guess, more of. I don't know, it was a little wild west. I mean, particularly my father, uh li- we lived in Oregon and he he handled western Oregon, which was which is pretty pretty out there. Um and he's been, you know, thrown out of second story windows and attacked by monkeys and been in gunfights <laughs> where he forgot his gun and I mean the the stories just sort of abounded. Uh and you know, the- a lot of them were funny because, you know, that's the truth of those kinds of situations there's a lot of Gallows humor and mistakes are made and uh, if you survive them, they turn out, you know, the the stories turn out being pretty funny about it. And so the that I think it speaks very much to this type of character, like a the Mitch Rapp type of character, because it is a very action oriented uh, character as opposed to you know more of a Sherlock Holmes or a very intellectual investigative kind of book. I mean, uh, you know, Mitch decides what he's going to do and then he acts on on that. So. I think that history was important for me um, to see those people, my father and his friends, who, who really literally did chase down criminals.
0: Yeah. Um, it seems like it would give you such a flavor as you consider situations to be able to think about, you know, the the folks that hung out with your dad, the folks you got to go shooting with, and be able to think, what would this guy have done in that situation? Is that? Am I putting too many words in your mouth there, or is that? No,
1: no, I, that's absolutely true. I mean, they, all these characters that I create are, are tend to be com, you know, composites of people I've known in the past. I think it'd be very hard, you know, if you think the way Vince did it, he he did it, in my mind, you know, backward. He did it the hard way. I I got into writing and and to some extent decided to write thrillers. I was a fan of a lot of different genres because I thought, well, it'll be easy. I mean, this was before the internet. You know, I I have all these contacts in the intelligence and law enforcement community, and uh, I can write a credible book about this. I think poor Vince, you know, he wrote the book and then got the contacts. So that first, those first couple of books must have been really difficult.
0: Yeah. Well, and do I remember, right, like over in London, your dad would work with the like head of MI6 or stuff like this, or like, didn't you have all sorts of cool people coming through when you were, when you guys were over there?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I didn't, at the time I didn't necessarily even know who they all were. Uh, You know, I, I knew there was a guy that, you know, nice guy, and they called him C, but I assumed that was because his name was Chris, and uh, it turns out C is actually, you know, in the James Bond movies is M, and I didn't really realize that until we were driving somewhere, and there was a traffic jam, so we just jumped over the, the median on the highway, and they closed the other side of the highway, and we just drove up it with a motor <laughs>
0: and
1: I thought, you know, there's something to this guy.
0: Yeah, it's an advantage when you spent time with the real-life M, right? Um, <laughs> So, uh, you know, I want to ask a little bit about, you know, creativity and inventing these worlds and inhabiting these characters. Uh, you know, I hear stories about how much uh, J.R.R. Tolkien did in the background of, of you know, the world of Middle Earth. And, you know, in a small way, I look at your Twitter and I see, you know, this is how I picture Joe Maslick's grandparents, maybe. <laughs> and it's, you know, this yeah. beefy, <laughs> big beefy guy in a huge fur coat, and, you know, like, I don't know, lumberjack looking dude. How how much do you think about where they came from and their backstory and what's, what's your methodology there?
1: You know, a lot. I, yeah, most of it doesn't ever ma- get to the page. Um, you know, I think I talked about, you know, Joe Maslick's background in a, in a book where, you know, how he had grown up poor and in the South and, and you know, wh- what it had been like and why he'd gotten into the military and all this, because that's always been in my head in order to create that character who I can sort of become when I'm when I'm writing from their point of view. So I know where these guys went to high school and what their girlfriend was like back then. And I'd probably never write that down because probably most people wouldn't be interested. But for me, it generates this rich and very real character that that I don't have to sit down and think, Oh, what would this person do? Or what th- would this person say at any given time? You know, they just do it and say it. And I write it down. I mean, to some extent, when I write books, I'm kind of a spectator. And I'm just writing down what's happening and what people are doing. And it all, you know, I have this outline, but then it just goes all in different directions, uh, as I'm sort of living it, whereas the outline is more of a intellectual process, what needs to happen where and and that kind of thing.
0: You know, it it makes me think more back to this comment you said that novels are really about people. Um, There's a quote from that old Dale Carnegie, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People book about the editor who could tell within 10 pages if the author liked people and that would be the biggest predictor of book sales or not according to this editor and Ah. it makes me think like i I thought it was so fun you know i don't want to you know spoil the book so i won't share too much but for me it felt like hey they're getting the band back together with some of these folks right yeah and um i'm thinking about you know so we can talk about we can talk about uh order to kill The backstory of Grisha, for instance, to me, that really did help me want to identify or want to like identify with that character, which if I do have a criticism of some other authors in the genre, you know, there's a real emphasis on tough guys. There's a real emphasis on overcoming situations but there isn't always that uh deeper identification with the character the character development yeah
1: Grisha so Grisha is a character that I created and so he he did not exist in the what I call the rap verse prior to me um and the idea was has always been I think with the Vince Flynn books and the Mitch Rapp books is to put Mitch up against you know, into situations that that maybe Vince hadn't to just see what he see what he'll do. It's kind of the fun the fun of it for me. So Grisha, I created as being sort of almost an equal to Mitch, and he'd never really faced anybody that he had to worry about maybe not being able to beat. But Grisha is a very different type of a person. He's kind of trapped in his in in his world and and his, in his life didn't necessarily want to be, but he was good at it, um, and so. I think much more I mean if if anything if I've done anything in those books that's me I I might not... My tendency is to is to try to cleave very close to Vince's style, but it would be Grisha. He's very much a character that seems like maybe could be out of one of my books. He's a little introspective, a little gloomy, and uh, like you say, has kind of a rich and deep background to him that gives you a pretty clear picture of why he is the way he is.
0: Yeah. Well, I think we're coming up on the end of part one here. Um, for anybody listening that, you know, that says they want to be a New York Times number one bestseller, what, what's some of the best advice you would give? Don't go into it with that goal.
1: Uh, You know, there's so many there's so many factors to having huge commercial success in writing that have not necessarily anything to do with how good your book is. Um, But, you know, I mean, if you do want to be successful in this business, I think one thing you have to remember at this point is that it's not about going and sitting in your basement and writing a book. You you do have to produce a good book, but now there's a, a significant amount of marketing demands and you have to be smart about that.
0: Like the the business around it.
1: Yeah, I mean that has become much that that's gone much more to the author than it was when I started in this business. When I started in this business, what could you do? You know, you you counted on your your uh, publisher to you know market the books, advertise it, make sure they were in the stores, make sure they had a great cover, get you interviews or whatever. But now with the internet, uh, the, the the author has the power and thus the obligation to go out there and and, uh, you know, to market themselves and and their books. I mean, you can't completely rely on your your publisher anymore.
0: Yeah. And is your point about not having that be the goal Kind of the counterintuitive of like focus on the writing and don't worry about the success, like focus on honing your craft, focus on that. Or,
1: yeah, I mean, well, you can't do much without a good book. So, that, that you know, that <laughs> that should be your initial goal is to make sure you've written a really strong book. Uh, and that again, you know, I, and I can't stress this enough that's hard work, it's hard work for anybody, no matter how talented they are. And you really have to get in there and criticize your own work. And you have to look at other people's work, see what's popular, see, uh, figure out why it's popular. You know, I mean, I did this when I first started. I read three books that, that were different from one another in the thriller genre, but that were bo- all really popular. And I kind of ex- studied them and said, well, what works in these books and what really didn't work in these books? And uh, how would I incorporate that into my own career and my own writing style? And I think that examination of those books allowed me to criticize my own books more and later it allowed me to do the exact same thing to Vince's books you know I read through the entire series in order again I'd written I'd read a bunch of them previously just as a fan but and studied them and figured out you know what works in these books what doesn't work in it how does he how does he do things and in, a, in an effort to you know essentially with the survivor write a forgery
0: I love it Well, let's end there for part one. Everybody, please tune in for the next episode. We're going to keep asking Vince uh, the questions of how he did it and what the rest of us can learn from it. Thanks so much. We're going to cut off part one of the interview there in the interest of time. We've had feedback that people would rather have 20 to 30-minute episodes, so we're going to break the interviews in half. Please check back tomorrow for part two of the interview. And as always, come to iCollective.co for show notes and... To learn more about Child Rescue, go to the menu and and look at our Child Rescue page and see if that's something that you'd like to get involved with. Thanks for listening. Now's
1: the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at The Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details.